I already gave you all a nugget of what we're going to be doing in today's message. Uh, Maybe, however, you've never heard this phrase, virtue signaling. But believe me when I tell you right now, it's very popular in our culture, specifically on college campuses and in corporate boardrooms. So to understand what virtue signaling is, first we have to understand what a signal is, uh, the most basic form. We've got a traffic signal up there, right? A signal is a very simple input or sign that means a whole lot more than that signal itself. So when you're driving a car, a light bulb turns red. Well, that's more than a light bulb turning red. That's a sign. It's a signal to us to stop. And we also know that what that means is likely the cross traffic has a green and they are going. And we also know that eventually that red is going to become green for us and red for them and we will be able to go again. And this simple series of light bulbs turning on and off is what allows traffic across major metropolitan cities to all move around freely without any accidents. Or so is the hope, right? But that's the job of a signal. It's to provide a whole bunch more information than the simple statement or action or banner that it is. And in this world, we have a whole bunch of examples of people virtue signaling. And so often with a virtue signal, people are trying to additionally convey, look at me and how virtuous I am because of this thing I do. So some people put out a flag that's red, white, and blue and says, let's go Brandon. And other people put out a flag that is a rainbow flag. And just seeing these two flags, it communicates a whole lot more information about the ideology of these two people. It's not just that one person supports a guy named Brandon and another person likes the rainbows in the sky, right? I don't even need to say anything. I just say these two flags and you guys snicker and go, yeah, those two people wouldn't be best friends probably. No, they wouldn't. But what we see is that these flags communicate a whole lot more about their political views than just what the simple signal might tell us. Back when Toyota Priuses first came out, They were a symbol of people who cared about the environment. They were small, uncomfortable, and very expensive. And so Hollywood elite went out in droves and purchased these brand new Toyota Priuses to show the rest of the world how much they cared about the environment. Save the whales, I drive a Prius. Nowadays, if you have a 2010 red Toyota Prius with 240,000 miles, it just means you're cheap. That's this guy. So nowadays, environmentalism has changed. So corporations all want to get in on it. And I read this article last week that just made me laugh. Save the bees. Have you guys heard? Honeybees are in massive decline. So all the corporations with their headquarters in Manhattan said, We need to save the bees. So they put beehives on top of their skyscrapers in Manhattan. 
They put so many beehives because there are so many corporations that are all virtue signaling that they want to save the bees. That there's now more bees than there are flowers and trees and shrubs to feed the bees. And so all these purchased commercial bees are taking over and the native bees that had figured out how to live on Manhattan are all dying off because they don't have enough food. You just have to read this and go, this is nonsense. Why are we putting beehives on roofs in Manhattan? One common virtue signal you're probably all familiar with if you're on social media. Maybe you've done it before. Something happens in the world and somebody makes a filter or an image and everybody puts that as their profile picture, say on Facebook. And it's their way without maybe donating a dollar, without donating to the cause, without doing anything to actually support the thing. They signal to the rest of the world, but I'm with these people. It's a signal like, I am good, I like this thing, even though I might not be doing anything at all to change this thing or make it better in the long run. But here's the thing. As Christians, the Bible tells us which virtues that we are to be identified by. And it's not the virtues that the world is posturing with. Biblical virtue signals for Christians should include faith, Hope, love, grace and truth get paired together. Humility. Honestly, this list could go on and on, but I decided to stop at six weeks. So that's where we're going. That's the map of what this series is going to look like. And my hope is at the end of this series, we all are able to evaluate our own lives against these virtues, not the virtues the world is telling us. Pick this side, pick that side, line up with us. But we say we line up with Christ and the virtues that he tells us to live our lives by. And so at the end of this, I want us to evaluate our own lives based on this list. As we jump into our first virtue today, there's a great transition verse in the Bible from what we were so focused on in our last series, the hereafter, to where we're going in this next series. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the Apostle Paul is right into the church in Corinth. And he says, For now, on this life, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then, in the next life, in the hereafter, we shall see face to face with God. Now, I know in part. Then, I shall know fully, even as I am fully known and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. So basically, Paul is telling this church in Corinth, look, in this life, you only see a tiny, foggy, dim bit of what reality from God's perspective looks like. We're very shielded in what we can see. And when the last day comes, like we talked about in the last series, when we have judgment and we go to hell or to heaven for all time, then we are finally going to have all the answers. We're going to know fully what God has in store for us and who he is with perfect clarity. But in the meantime, he's saying, these are the three things you all should be focused on. Faith, hope, and love. These three, three virtues should define our lives both in this life and in the next. In fact, Paul is so big on these three virtues, he actually ties them together within the same couple of sentences six different times 
in his 13 letters that we have recorded in our Bible. And so this is why we're beginning our series looking at these three virtues, specifically looking at faith today. So when we think of faith, we're really talking about belief, but not just some sort of superficial belief that something is correct. It's not just acquiescing that, yes, that is a fact, and I believe it to be true. Even the demons believe that God is God. That doesn't mean they have faith in God. Instead, faith is this, or belief runs so deeply inside of us, it should impact how we view the entire world and how we act towards other people. And so the instruction to be people who hold this depth of belief is found all through the Bible. We all have a famous verse in our minds from John 3.16, right? It tells us that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And then when you go to Acts chapter 16, verse 13, Paul very directly says to the people, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Right? Whoever believes will have eternal life. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Belief means that we put our faith in this person, Jesus Christ, who lived over 2,000 years ago to actually be who he says he was. The promised Messiah. God in flesh. The Savior who paid the price on the cross. Everything we've been singing about all day long in the lyrics of these songs. We're saying, yes, I believe he is who he is. He did what he said he was going to do. And my eternity is going to be exactly what he told me it would be. This ultimately is the fork in the road between Christians and non-Christians. Or a more clear way to put it, believers and between, between unbelievers. Do I believe Jesus is who he said he was or don't I? This is the dividing point. Faith is what determines if you're on team Jesus or not. You know, because you can have hope and you can have love. You can be a positive person. You can be a caring person. The next two virtues we're going to talk about. But without faith, you're not a believer. Without faith, you're not a Christian. That's why Paul uses this virtue first. Faith has to be first because faith is what determines who is a Christian and who is not. Who is a believer in Jesus Christ and who is not. You can want to be a good person and volunteer your time at the food pantry and even go to church regularly. But if you don't have faith, if you don't actually believe in Jesus, then you aren't a Christian. Your faith and your belief in Jesus is where everything starts with God. Christian faith means, and I got this a quote in the New Bible Dictionary, it means abandoning all trust in one's own resources. Faith means casting oneself unreservedly on the mercy of God. Faith means laying hold on the promises of God in Christ, relying entirely on the finished work of Christ for salvation and the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit for daily strength. Faith implies complete reliance on God and full obedience to God. Faith implies complete reliance on God and 
full obedience to God. That's the virtue by with which all of us should be seeking to be recognized by the world. Our signal to the world, they should see that faith inside of us. So speaking of faith, there's a very well-known chapter of the Bible called the faith chapter. That's where we're going to be today. So if you have your Bibles and you want to open up and read with me, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11. So in Hebrews chapter 11, the author walks through the life of many characters of the Old Testament that we can read about in our own Bibles. He also talks about some in things that the New Testament Christians had to persevere, had to go through as the Roman world was trying to come down on Christians and stop the spread of Christianity. And the one common thread that ties all these people together through all of chapter 11 is their faith in God. In fact, this theme is clearly called out in Hebrews 6 where the author writes, and without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. I love it when the last series and this series tie together so well with this concept of these rewards for those of us who seek God. But now, with all that said, I'm going to run through Hebrews chapter 11. In verse 4 it says, By faith Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. Verse 5, By faith Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. 7, By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. 8, By faith Abraham, when called to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed, and he went. Jumping to 17, By faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. 20, by faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons. By faith Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. 24, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God. 29, by faith, the people passed through the Red Sea on dry land. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. Verse 32, and what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weaknesses was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. 
They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. Those are our spiritual ancestors. I don't know about you, but I get excited when I read this list. I read this list and I see story after story of people, flawed heroes just like us. We went through that series this summer. They weren't perfect, but they had a faith in God and they did some incredible things. They went through some incredible situations because they trusted the power of God to walk them through these situations. So I'm encouraged in my own faith that maybe I can be like them. And I also feel challenged, right? You look at this list and you say, do I have faith like these people who are discussed in this chapter? Do I have faith like they demonstrated in their own lives? Does my life signal to the world that I believe and trust fully in the power of Jesus working in me? Do people recognize that I, what I stand for, not because I just wear the title of pastor, but because of how I actually go about my daily business, how I treat other people, how I treat my family, where I spend my money, where I spend my time? Maybe it does, but maybe it doesn't. The good news for us all is that we have a lifetime to grow and develop our faith. Faith begins small, and it develops through experience. It doesn't just appear out of nowhere. When we read this list of saints in Hebrews chapter 11, we have to recognize that they didn't start there. It's easy for us to think, well, they're the heroes of the faith, and I'm a zero of the faith. But we can't use that as an excuse. We have to remember, they all had moments where they didn't trust God as much as they did at the end of their lives. Abraham had faith to follow God's lead after God had showed up to him and said that he was going to make him uh, the father of a great nation. Noah built a boat after God showed up to him and very clearly and specifically laid out the plans of what he was supposed to do. Moses experienced a bush that didn't burn up before he ever followed God. And later, when he doubted God again, God gave him various miraculous signs to say, don't worry, you can go to Pharaoh, this is what I'm going to do for you. Even Jesus' own disciples early in the ministry, they didn't understand it. They were watching these miracles, and yet they doubted. That's why Jesus said, Oh, you of little faith. So if right now you feel like your faith is small, that's okay. It's okay to say, I don't have faith like that. I still feel like I'm fluttering. When life is really hard, I have all sorts of doubts. I don't know if God's going to take care of me. If that's you, when you're in those moments, what I want you to do is focus on those times when God felt the most real to you. Focus on those moments when you said, I know at that time, five years ago it might be in this place, going through this situation, I know God was with me. Those are like the monuments of the Old Testament when they'd go through and they'd have a battle and they'd win and God would say, build a monument right there so that you never forget that I showed up to you in that moment. 
Focus on those moments, those monuments in your life. Remember the times where God answered your prayers. So often we pray, and then maybe weeks or months go by, and we get through the hard thing, or the person is healed, and we go, oh, that's a coincidence, pretty cool. And we don't give God the glory and say, God, you did that. Thank you for answering that prayer. Think about the saints in your own life, the people around you that you know have a real, deep, abiding, stable faith. Spend some time with them. Talk to them about their faith and how they can be so sure and so confident. Let that rub off on you. And most importantly, ask God to grow your faith. Granted, that might mean that he's going to bring you on a very challenging adventure. But if that's what it takes to grow your faith, then that's what he's going to do. Because he wants to see you mature in your faith. For others of you, you might right now be going through times of doubt about God. Fortunately, doubt doesn't disqualify us from heaven. Because I think all of us would be in danger at that point. It's human at moments to doubt God. I imagine there were times when Moses was building this boat a hundred years in. And he looked at this giant structure he'd built in the middle of the desert. And he said, what am I doing? Am I crazy? (laughs) And then he said, no, I know that that's what God told me to do. And he got up the next day and he kept building. We read about John the Baptist. Jesus' own cousin had seen these miracles. And yet when he's arrested, he knows that he's about to be executed. He sends his disciples, his own followers to Jesus to basically say, Are you sure you're the Messiah? Are you positive? He wanted that assurance. Even in that moment, John the Baptist, who were told that he was the greatest of all who'd come before him, he still had doubt. So it's okay if you have a night where life is really bad and falling apart, and you go, God, are you even out there, or is all this uh, facade? That's okay. When we start to doubt, we start to wonder if it's all real, what we have to do sometimes, and I know it sounds simple, but we just have to dig our heels in and say, God, no matter what I see, no matter how I feel right now, because the heart is wicked and it goes all sorts of ways sometimes, we simply have to say, but I know you are real. I know that you started this thing inside of me, and yeah, I may be questioning it right now, but I'm going to go to bed. And I'm going to wake up, and you're still going to be with me. That's just the foundation. That's what faith is. That's what belief is. No matter what the world around you looks like, no matter what is being thrown at you, no matter how people are treating you, no matter how junky you feel inside, you still say, but my feet are still on you, God. I don't feel it right now in my heart. (laughs) And in my head, I'm having doubts coming in. But I'm going to push those out, I'm going to go to bed, and I know that you will see me through this. So in either case, whether you have little faith, whether you're struggling with doubt, Jesus tells us that faith the size of a mustard seed can move a mountain. And the thing is, you can't move a mountain. But the question is, do you have faith in the God who can Do you believe that he can and he will move mountains for you? That's the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. As we recognize, I can't do this on my own. 
but I know somebody who can, and I trust that he will. So to wrap this message up, we have to turn back to Hebrews and see how the author concluded his message about these heroes of the faith. So if you go to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, there's a therefore. That's the conclusion of one idea, moving to the next. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, because we're in this lineage of these incredible saints who have gone before us, who have been sawed in two rather than deny Jesus Christ, because we have the same power of God in us that they had in them, let us throw off everything that hinders the sin that so easily entangles. Get rid of that garbage. Let go of the world. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Run with God. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Live by faith, not by sight. That's the challenge, and that's the blessing for every believer in Jesus. Believers get to experience this life in a supernatural sense. We get to see that it's not coincidence, but God's actually doing something. He's answering our prayer. He's leading this world to a final conclusion that He has in store that's going to be better than any of us can imagine. And we get to do this in touch with the Creator and the Sustainer of this entire world. And as we fix our eyes on Jesus, we recognize that He is the author and perfecter of our faith. And so we have to remember, when your faith feels weak, it's not up to you to will yourself to have stronger faith, to have this perfect faith that never wavers. That's Jesus' job. Jesus started it inside of you, and he's going to finish it. When you start to waver, he's going to grab you and say, No, you're okay. Follow me. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we see how much Jesus' disciples grew from early in the ministry when he said, Oh, you of little faith, to the book of Acts where they're doing these incredible things. Stephen is being beaten and stoned and saying, Forgive them. And Jesus is going to do the exact same thing in your lives. Because that's what he does for his followers, for his family, for his people of faith, for the believers of who he is and what he's done. As long as we keep our eyes fixed on him. What he started, he's going to finish. And we need to simply hold on to that hope. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray?